I'll be reading from Proverbs 16, 1 through 9, the New International Version. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes his enemies to make peace with them. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. In the hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, uh, I want to talk about um, a title of my sermon, as you know, is Plan, Pray, Surrender. I want to talk about plans and guidance. So I have a friend who happens to be here this morning, and um, when my friend got to retirement, he finished his last day of work, probably had a party, and the next morning he got up and his wife said to him, so what's your plan for the day? And he said, I don't have a plan for the day. I just retired. I don't want a plan for the day. I just want to do stuff. Now, I know my friend well enough to know that he probably did have at least one plan. He had a tea time. But uh, other than that, you, you get the essence of it, right? He's saying, don't push me for a plan. I've been planning all my life. Some of us really like to plan. And for others of us, it's a bit of a burden. And it's probably likely that if you're married, one of you is the planner and the other one is not, right? You plan enough to get along, but the other person's the real planner. So when I read the outline of my sermon to my wife last night, plan, pray, surrender, she said, you're going to be talking about planning? Because she's the planner in our house. And some time ago, a long time ago now, she demanded that we have a family planning night. And it was on Sunday night. And everybody hated it except her. I mean, the rest of the family is like, oh, no, we got to go through this again. And sometimes when one of the kids calls um, and, you know, they're in another town and they happen to be calling on Sunday night, we say, well, put you on speakerphone for family planning and you can hear them groan in the background. We're different, right? Some of us are just planners and some of us uh, just like to play it by ear. But all of us, seriously, we need to plan. The Proverbs even suggest that there's wisdom in planning. And if you think about plans, um, you could break it down into a variety of ways, right? You could break it down into a lot of categories. But imagine this is sort of basic planning. You got a vision. Then you need to implement a strategy. Then you need to have imagination. Because if you're not creative, it might not work. And then you need flexibility. 
when it doesn't work out, to know what to do next. So one of my favorite places to eat in Bloomington, I won't tell you what it is, but I'm going to read you the vision for the restaurant. Here's the name of the vision for the restaurant. Fine dining, American casual style, approachable and fun without sacrificing excellence. Guided by an enduring love of Cajun flavors with nods to regional and European cuisines, we focus on doing the simple and most important things right. Somebody in the first service nailed it. What do you think it was? Uptown, yeah. So it's, it, it is so Uptown Cafe, okay? When I read that, if you know Uptown Cafe and you didn't catch it, think about Uptown Cafe. Everything about Uptown Cafe reeks of that vision. As a matter of fact, if you sit there, have you ever noticed all around Uptown, there's pictures of what? Jazz artists from Cajun country, New Orleans, right? When Michael Cassidy decided he was going to start a restaurant, he came up with a vision. He put in place a strategy, which probably meant borrowing some money, and how he was going to come up with a business plan. And then he used his imagination. He had to. He, he's creating cuisines. Not everything that was on that menu was there when he started in 1971. He created new stuff. And then he had to be flexible. Why? Because culture changes. People change. The way you go about things changes. And now for those of you who know, Michael Cassidy is retiring and his son Galen's taking over. The same vision or mission is there, but you can feel a difference because of the flexibility and the imagination. So apply the same principle to something else. Uh, for the next few weeks, we're all anticipating the bowl game that Indiana almost never gets to, but this year for sure will, right? In football. And what's coming up? What's coming up is a game against Penn State, tough. A game against Michigan, maybe even tougher. And a game against Purdue that we all expect to win, right? Tom Allen, the coach, when he approaches those games, he's going to approach those games with a grand vision. And it's pretty simple and reductionistic. Beat them, right? That's the vision. All three of them beat them and have an incredibly winning season over the top. But he also has to come up with a strategy. And the strategy for Penn State and the strategy for Michigan are going to be slightly different. Every game, he'll have a game plan. And when that game plan hits, the players and the coaches know what to do. Everybody knows their position, or should. Everybody knows the count, or should. And whenever the running back or somebody else gets the ball, they're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And you know what routinely the running back does? He looks for X, Y, and Z, and then because he's an athlete, he imagines something else. He sees something else on the field, and he makes a change, and he does this or that or the other. And you know what? At the end of the first half, great coaches always go in at halftime because they're enormously flexible. Might seem like they're not, but they are. They go in and they make their famous adjustments, right? Here's the way the defense has been responding to us. Here's the way we've been responding to the offense. And they have a conversation about how they're going to adjust things and be flexible and implement the vision, which is to win. Think about that across the board. In every part of life, that is a strategy, an overall strategy 
that's good. And here's what I want to say. The Proverbs understand that. And they embrace it. They endorse it. Planning is good. But there's something else that the Proverbs say that's more important than just the basics of planning. It is this. The Proverbs say what you need is wise planning. You actually could plan for wickedness, and that's not a good plan. No matter how big your vision, how great your strategy, how wonderful your imagination, or how flexible you are. 11.14, Proverbs says this, For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. You could apply that to your life personally as well. For lack of a vision or guidance or direction, your life falls apart. And in order to implement the vision, the direction that you think you need to implement, you need advisors because you can't do it on your own. Another passage, 1522, puts it this way. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So not only should you seek wise counsel when you're trying to implement a plan, you also need to be, if you're a Christ follower, you need to be aware of God's will. You don't launch a plan without reference to God's will. You don't do something that's outside God's divine plan. Now, you might not know details, but you know enough. As a matter of fact, this whole series has been about that. One proverb at the very beginning in chapter 3 puts it this way, do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't be so saturated with self that you think you got it. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. And then God will establish your plans. So when we think of the will of the Lord, what do we think of? Well, a lot of things, sometimes mysterious things, but some really straightforward things for the last semester we've noted in the book of Proverbs is the will of the Lord is to seek wisdom above all else. Not wealth, not fame, not getting the leg up. Seek wisdom. It's more important than silver, gold, and any costly jewels, says the Proverbs. Second, we know that we're supposed to submit to discipline. In other words, we're supposed to submit to the discipline of a process in order to gain certain results, but we're also supposed to submit to the discipline of God and the discipline that comes from criticism of wise counsel. Submit to that discipline, the proverb says, and be humble. That's the will of God. Serve others, not just yourself. That's the will of God. Don't oppress the poor. Whatever you're doing, don't oppress the poor. You know why? I'll give you a real good practical reason. Because God's on their side. And when you oppress the poor, you're smacking the face of God. And when you smack the face of God, you're going to get it back. So don't oppress the poor. That's the will of God. As a matter of fact, to add to that, use your wealth, whatever you have, to bless others. 
that's the will of God. And don't play favorites. Don't hand out bribes. Listen to others. Take advice. All those things are the basics of the will of God. Now, you take your plan and ask, how does it fit into that rubric? How does your plan conform to that? So the first thing is plan. You know why? Because it's a responsible thing to do. The Proverbs reinforce this over and over again. But once you plan, the second stage is to pray. Why do you pray? Because you were made for this. You might not feel like it on every day, but you were made to be in relationship with God. And if you're made to be in relationship with anyone, how can you be in that relationship without a conversation? Can you even be in a good relationship with your dog without talking to your dog? Of course not. Can you be in a good relationship with your friend or your wife without conversation? No. If you're going to be in relationship with God, which is what you were made to be, you must be in conversation with God. And prayer is conversation with God. That's why you do it, because you were made for it. And in prayer, you're asking for guidance many times. I want to suggest um, that prayer is a very humbling act. And I want to suggest something else a little further. I'm going to talk to the guys, only the guys. Women, you can listen in. I think one of the biggest problems we have is asking. We think we can do it ourselves. We think it's our responsibility to figure it out. We think it's when the crisis happens, our responsibility to manage it. We don't ask for directions. We ignore the GPS. We make our own way. Now, if you're married, your wife might say, yeah, that's true. You'd rather ask for help. I mean, you'd rather pick up something that's heavy than ask for help and admit you have a back problem, right? You just, we're just like that. I think that that laps over into prayer because prayer is dominantly petition. It's asking God for help. So when you've got a big decision to make in your life, don't think for a moment that you can make that decision on your own. Recognize that you need to ask. You need to petition God for wisdom because you need it. Now, of course, your wife might say the one time that you don't act like you don't need anything is when you're sick and then you act like a big baby, right? You've heard that before. That's, that's when we're asking for stuff all the time. But for the most part, it seems like that's one of our hangouts as guys. We really don't like to ask for help. Come on, guys, am I barking up the wrong tree? Or, okay, all right. I just wanted to see if anybody recognized that as a problem. It is. Prayer is asking. It's asking for help. It means we're needy people. and We don't like to be needy. Prayer also is humbling. As one verse in 16.2 that we just read says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord understands the heart. We don't understand our own hearts. How many of you 
in the last year have charted a course for your life, came up with some grand scheme for your life, and you know that your grand plan is not according to what virtue and God says it should be? I would imagine most of you would say, no, I don't do that last year. I might not be perfect, but I didn't come up with schemes that went in the opposite direction of God's will. And you know what you did? You said to yourself, my plan is right. My plan is good. My plan is honorable, maybe even righteous. And God says, I know you said that. And here's something else I know. You don't know that because you can't know your heart. So that's why you pray humbly. God, help me to understand where I'm coming from in spite of the fact that I think I know. Prayer humbles us, and prayer means that we follow Jesus. Can you imagine following Jesus without doing two things? Following God, loving Him, and loving others. I can't imagine it. You're not following Jesus if you don't live that way. You've got to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. That's following Jesus. Have you ever prayed very long without stepping into prayer on behalf of others? I bet not. Within a few minutes, your natural inclination, which is a righteous inclination, is to pray for others because you are wired to serve others. So when you enter into prayer, you are inclined to ask on behalf of others. That's part of God's will for your life. You were made for this prayer. And third, and finally, the way to plan, pray, find God's will is surrender. Why? Because you're not in control anyway. You really aren't. I have a prayer book that I read a prayer from every morning and every evening. Um, it's a daily journal of private prayers written by a guy called John Bailey back at the early part of the 20th century. It's been revised, so the language is a little bit more contemporary. But one of the morning prayers goes something like this. Lord, I surrender this day and everything about it to you because I know that almost nothing that happens today will be within my control. Because God directs our paths. We're not in control. Even the best planner, you're not in control. So we surrender to God with the realization that we're really not in control. And we need divine guidance. And when we set our plans and the outcome is not what we expect, maybe it's what we expect was success and we get failure. That doesn't matter because opportunities emerge out of failure and new directions create unexpected blessings. Our control over our lives is very limited, so why don't we acknowledge it and surrender our ways to the Lord? This verse from Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Let me insert a phrase, because your understanding is not enough. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight, or he will guide you or direct your path. Surrender to God. You know what um, recently occurred to me? Actually, it occurred to me in the context of a lot of conversations uh, with scientists at IU that, as some of you know, turned into a Creation Care three-part series seminar. I remember walking through the canyon of McCormick's Creek, and Michael Hamburger, Professor Michael Hamburger, was giving us a field trip and telling us about the layers of rocks and how long they'd been there and what made them and all that kind of stuff, and it was amazing. He's a geologist, a geophysicist, and uh, I was just overwhelmed by the detail and what I was learning. And then I thought to myself, Here's what Christianity is. It's a particular perspective on the same reality that everyone else experiences. Michael has become a good friend of mine, but he would tell you straight up he's not a Christian, not really much of a person of faith. When Michael looked at the rocks, he saw certain things which for all I know, are true. When I looked at the rocks, I saw the same thing. And I was overwhelmed by God. The Christian is called to see things through a different set of spectacles, the exact same things. Which is why when the Christian follows God does his best to follow God's will, and it all comes apart at the screws, the Christian says, that reality is the hand of God. I don't understand why. I might have been responsible for, in some measure, the failure that's in front of me, but God is directing my steps. So no matter what I do, if I'm following God, it's okay. But it's better than okay. Because God has divine, sovereign understanding of life, and he's going to direct you in such a way that all the realities of your life are going to point to his purposes. That's a Christian perspective on life. I know of a um, person who spent a lot of years preparing to be a professor, a professor of medieval studies. This person was educated at the highest level and seemed to be having a pretty good career as a professor at Oxford and Cambridge. He wrote books, some of the titles are The Discarded Image, An Introduction to Medieval and Renaissance Literature. Here's another one he wrote, The Allegory of Love, A Study of Medieval Tradition. And unless your specialty 
is medieval studies. You've probably never heard of those. But maybe you've heard of these. He wrote these too. The Great Divorce. Screw tape letters. Mere Christianity. The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, it's C.S. Lewis. Do you know his scholarly work in medieval literature? Probably not. You know what happened to C.S. Lewis? In my opinion, God directed his steps. And everything he had studied about medieval literature converged for him to tell a story about a unique perspective on reality which was thoroughly Christian. Some people might see C.S. Lewis's life as something of a failed adventure because he's not well-known as a medieval scholar. My perspective is that it was a divine diversion. God working in his heart helped him use what he had studied to apply it to the Christian life. And thank God he did. Because his influence is broad. Few children have any question about who Aslan is. A week ago, on Saturday, um, my wife had arranged for us, uh, my daughter, boyfriend, and uh, the parents of her boyfriend to go to Butler University, not for a game, but to see a reading, which was memorized, performed by an actor, And what he did, he sat on the stage, moved about a bit, had a little demon character that was part of the monologue, and from memory, he read chapters from screw tape letters. But I got to tell you this before I ever got inside, I was looking at the hordes of people. More than 2,000, packed, not a seat in the audience, milling about, getting their refreshments. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. C.S. Lewis has been gone for almost 60 years. And he wrote this thing as sort of an aside, not a part of his scholarly literature, more than 60 years ago. There's thousands of people here just to hear it read again. And then I thought, oh, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because in every major city in the United States and many around the world, there is a C.S. Lewis Society. And it's not likely that they spend too much time thinking about his criticism of medieval literature. They think about the books that he wrote for children, and the books that he wrote for a wider audience who are or want to be people of faith. Yeah, it wasn't a silly turn in the road. It wasn't a failure. It was a divine diversion.
Thank God for that. Here's what I want to suggest. If you follow God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, you cannot fail. And God will direct your steps. It might seem like a divine diversion, but God knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, pray for us. Um, those of us who are here this morning and uh, heard the wisdom of the Proverbs and recalled the direction that God took different people, whether spoken or ones we thought of as the sermon went on. And I pray, Lord, for those this morning that are right on the edge of a decision. Some kind of decision that, well, maybe life-changing. Maybe a new direction in a job. Maybe a new direction in a relationship. I pray, Lord, that they will call out to you. And in humility realize that they don't have the answers. And they'll submit their plans to you, and then as the plans unfold, they'll surrender at every stage of the developing plan. Lord, I pray for those who are on the edge of speaking to another. Maybe something is difficult. Give them wisdom about what to say, or give them wisdom about not saying anything at all, but especially give them wisdom to know how to be. Lord, I pray for those um, who are making new decisions right now that you will allow them to be open. Not to be too rigid and to assume they have it all figured out, but be, be open to others' advice, which so often when it's wise is advice from you. Not to be so insular that they're inside their own head, but to reach out and uh, ask for wisdom. But above all, Lord, I pray that you will, in the process of us making decisions, make us faithful. Don't let us uh, run out ahead in a selfish way. Make us people who fear the Lord and follow you. And then, Lord, give us faith. Help us to trust that our times and our plans are truly in your hands. And you're going to make something beautiful of it because we're loving, following, and trusting you. In your name we pray.